Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 50 now. On our website, just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Grant, Tom Juneau, Catherine Miles, Lane DeGregory, Christopher Gofford, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Still air is cool and heavy, almost thick enough to drink. This is how these days often begin. The atmosphere is primed, the air a volatile gas. All it needs is a match. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Brantley Hargrove. Hargrove wrote the book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras, which was published by Simon & Schuster in April. The book, as the title suggests, is about Tim Samaras, a storm chaser who was the first person to ever get a probe inside the core of a tornado. It was something that uh, atmospheric scientists have been trying and failing to do for decades. And uh, I think everyone was shocked when this uh, this self-taught engineer came out of nowhere and, uh, you know, did what everyone else had failed to do. The book has gotten some rave reviews. Hampton Sides, the author of In the Kingdom of Ice, said that the man who caught the storm is a thrilling tale of Promethean defiance. The Washington Post said that Hargrove is one of today's best science writers who takes the reader not only on a journey through the remarkable life of engineer explorer Samaris, but also through the beautifully desolate roads of the plains while on the chase. Hargrove has written for Wired, Popular Mechanics, and Texas Monthly, among other publications. He's gone inside the effort to reverse engineer super tornadoes using supercomputers. He's chased violent storms from the Great Plains to the Texas coast. But he's also done more than just write about devastating storms. He's explored the world of South American jewel thieves who terrorize diamond dealers in South Florida. As usual, we've linked to much of Hargrove's work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Brantley, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, I, I bought uh, the man who caught the storm, uh, pretty, pretty closely to when it came out, and, and read it uh, in what is most definitely not a storm season in Southwest Connecticut. Um, but I, I really, really enjoyed it a great deal. Um, can you talk a little bit about what what the book is about? Uh, the book follows Tim Samaras. He was this. Uh, engineer, explosives expert, uh, inventor, and storm chaser, uh, who became the first person ever to gather data from the core of a violent tornado. It was something that uh, atmospheric scientists have been trying and failing to do for decades. And uh, I think everyone was shocked when this uh, this self-taught engineer came out of nowhere and uh, you know did what everyone else had failed to do. Uh, the one of the great things, uh, one of the things that I think sets this this book apart um, uh, from a lot of a lot of other nonfiction uh, that I read is the quality of writing and, and basically how well it's written um, can you read just a snippet uh, from the book 
Sure, I'll read uh, uh, just a short passage from chapter one. It's called The Watcher, uh, and it takes place on July 21st, 1993. Uh, Fog clings to the low swells of eastern Colorado rangeland as dawn breaks. The mist walls off the far horizon, and for a few short hours the high plains feel a little more finite. The still air is cool and heavy, almost thick enough to drink. This is how these days often begin. The atmosphere is primed, the air a volatile gas. All it needs is a match. By noon, the summer sun presses down. The sagging fog begins to heat, and the dense haze disperses, along with the morning chill. The faultless dome of heaven takes on a hard, lacquered blue, and the windless air stirs as a steady breeze sweeps up out of the southeast. A skein of fluffy clouds sets adrift on the horizon. The average citizen sees a sunny day. Tim Samaras sees a fine afternoon for a tornado. Oh, that was fantastic. And and I also have to say that I, 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 if there's ever going to be an audio book, I think you should be reading it as well. That was really excellent. <laughs> there is. It's, uh, it's written by a, a man with a very lovely voice. His name is Jacques Roy. Okay, okay. Um, I'll have to check that out, although it's going to be hard to top your own reading voice right there. Um, so that was awesome. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about how this book project uh, came about? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was working at the Dallas Observer uh, back in 2013. Uh, you know, it was an all-weekly here in Dallas, Texas. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was following everything that had been going on, um, you know, that, that late spring. Uh, you know, I mean, as, as, a, as a weather-aware person and, a, you know, a denizen of the Southern Plains, uh, it was hard not to not to notice the uh, May 20th, 2013 uh, tornadic event uh, in Moore, Oklahoma. A lot of people got killed. Um, you know, this, this tornado hit a, an elementary school and killed a bunch of little kids. I mean, it was a shocking, horrific event. Uh, and then 11 days later, uh, you know, it looked like lightning was going to strike twice. Um, uh, central Oklahoma was once again under the gun. Uh, you know, it was going to look to be another bad day. And uh, sure enough, you know, the storm started building and, uh, you know, I, I follow some chaser accounts and, you know, things like that on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I was seeing some video of just this monster uh, uh, west of Oklahoma City uh, near this little town called El Reno. Um, you know, and we later find out that it was the largest tornado ever observed on Earth that we know of, um, you know, 2.6 miles in width. Uh, we would also later find out that it had, um, you know, winds well in excess of 300 miles per hour. That's consistent with the fastest ever observed. Uh, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a superlative event, to say the least. And uh, a few days later, word started to leak out uh, about what had happened that day. Uh, you know, some people had been killed, but, you know, the first storm chasers who had ever been killed had also died. This, uh, this guy named Tim Samaris, who I was, I, you know, I was familiar with him. I'd seen... Uh, his show Storm Chasers on the Discovery Channel, but I don't think I was that well acquainted with his mission. Uh, and his son, Paul, he was a 24-year-old uh, you know, young guy, and uh, Tim's longtime chase partner, uh, meteorologist Carl Young. Uh, and I, I was just kind of struck by the story. I mean, this tornado, which was just unbelievable. And then these men, you know, I wanted to, I just wanted to learn a lot more about what they were doing out there. What, you know, why were they so close? What were what were they trying to accomplish out there? Uh, you know, what was their mission? So I, I begged my editor at the, at the Dallas Observer to, you know, send me to, to Oklahoma and Colorado 
to report on this story that had absolutely nothing to do with Dallas. And, um, you know, because uh, the Observer, you know, was and, and still is a, a part of this all weekly chain. You know, the, you know, at the time we still had the Village Voice uh, and, and Westward and uh, the Houston Press. Uh, you know, all these all weeklies. We kind of did national features, so you could you could sort of swing it because it would be something that would run in those other papers, and they could all share the cost of reporting. So, you know, I went out there to you know Oklahoma, where these guys had gotten killed, into into Colorado, where Tim and Paul had lived. And I uh, just started, you know, piecing it together, talking to friends and colleagues and chase buddies and, uh, you know, figuring out this guy's life and, uh, you know, what drove him and, uh, you know, how things went so wrong that day in Oklahoma. You mentioned that you at the time uh, had followed you followed some chase accounts uh, uh, and, and you paid attention. You, I think you mentioned in the book that you had always kind of been interested in um, the severe weather, uh, you know, of that of the region. Um uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how, how, how important that was to, I guess, have that, that innate interest? Well, sure. You know, as a, as, as a Texan, I live in Tornado Alley. You know, it's, a, it's, a reali- it's been a reality uh, in my life, uh, you know, since the beginning. Um, you know, it, when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, you know, about 15 years old, um, you know, we lived pretty close to a, a, little, a little town called Gerald, Texas. That's in central Texas. And, uh, you know, anybody who, who pays attention to tornadoes and the history of tornadoes is familiar with that event. It took place in 1997. Um, this F5 plowed through this little, uh, this little neighborhood in, uh, in Gerald and, I mean, wiped it from the map. I mean, houses uh, that have been scoured down to the concrete foundations. I mean, it even took the, the linoleum and the, and the plumbing in some cases. Uh, it was, you know, some of the worst destruction uh, most researchers have ever seen to this day. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd stocked shelves in that general store the year before. That was my first job. Uh, and, you know, I, I have very distinct memories of, of driving through there with my family after that event and seeing all those slabs. Uh, and it, it made a huge impression on me. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been kind of fascinated by severe weather ever since. I mean, my first, uh, my first reporting gig at a at a daily newspaper was in the was in Gillette, Wyoming, at the Gillette News Record, and uh, I remember there was this one day where a, a funnel cloud uh, appeared in the sky over Gerald, and me and the photographer went out and tried to chase it down. I mean, it was <laughs> incredibly exciting, and uh, you know, I, I've always wanted to see them ever since. It's funny because I, you know, in my newspaper career, I remember um, hating the weather stories, but that was always because they were about like snow. Um, and that's not as exciting <laughs> as as these severe uh, severe storms. Um, so so you wrote you wrote a, you wrote a series of stories um, uh, about tornado chasers, and, and you wrote that initial piece about Samaris and, and 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 what happened with him. How did all of that end up be uh, uh, turning into um, uh, this really excellent book? I mean, I, before I was even finished with the, that feature story for the Dallas Observer, I knew that there was there was more to this. I mean, anybody who's ever worked in Alt Weekly knows that the turnaround's pretty quick on these stories. You don't get a whole lot of time to marinate on it. And so, you know, I had about probably three weeks to report and then write this thing. And uh, I felt as though I'd barely scratched the surface. So, I mean, almost immediately I set to uh, writing a book proposal um, because I knew that this was, I mean, this was an incredible story and that this guy... Uh, was an incredible man who had contributed to the field of atmospheric science in some pretty profound ways. And I thought that his life more than deserved uh, a really detailed account, uh, you know, that was uh, rendered with as much care as I could possibly give it. You, uh, 
how old were you when you were at the book uh, book proposal? Oh gosh, so I'm about to turn 36 now, and that was back in uh, uh, 2013, 2014. So I feel like I was a much younger person back then. Yeah, what was that? was that the first time you wrote a book uh, book proposal? Oh yeah, yeah, it was. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, right. Writing a book proposal is not the same as. Uh, is writing a feature. Those those credits don't transfer. It's kind of more like trying to sell something uh, with with little dollops of feature writing sprinkled in, you know, just to, I guess, show the editor that you can string some sentences together. Right. Uh, so so um, once you ended up with a book deal, uh, what was your first step uh, in terms of starting the reporting on this on this project? Well, uh, my first step uh, was to go storm chasing. Um, because I got the, you know, I got the book deal in probably, uh, mid to late April. And I mean, storm season was just about to start kicking up. And I knew that that was a part of the, the reporting process I really wanted to do. You know, I, mean, I feel like if I'm going to write about this storm chaser, uh, I should probably walk a few miles in his shoes and go live in his world for a bit. Um, so I got some of his, his buddies and colleagues to, uh, let me tag along with, him, uh, that, that season and, uh, you know, get a taste for the life. What was that like? Uh, it was uh, it was fun. Um, you know, it was often uh, edifying because I mean, you know, I, I, I grew up on Twister, uh, so I had this idea of what storm chasing was, and it was, it's not like that at all. Um, storm chasing is often quite boring. I found, uh, you know, I mean, you're driving thousands of miles uh, to see something that often doesn't materialize. I mean, it's like. It's like trying to find a needle in the haystack if the haystack's the size of the Great Plains. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're driving for, you know, we'd go out for about a week at a time usually. And uh, I saw some beautiful storms and, you know, slept in some really gross motels and ate a lot of bad food and just lots of sedentary hours in a vehicle. Um, and, you know, I went out again for another week and, uh, you know, kind of the same experience. Then I went out for a third week uh, with some different guys. And, uh you know, we, we passed, you know, four or five days and, uh, you know, didn't have a whole lot of luck. And then there was going to be this one day we knew that it was going to be a down day. So we sort of hunkered down in this motel in Grand Island, Nebraska, um, because we knew that the next day uh, could be could be interesting. Uh, so, you know, we, we kind of spent the day drinking beer and watching pay-per-view TV in the hotel room. And, uh, you know, the next day we, we woke up and the guys that I was with, you know, both very experienced storm chasers who chased with Tim for a lot of years, uh, I mean, they were just giddy as school children. Um, and, uh, you know, we stepped outside and the air was super thick and uh, moist and, and heated. And it was just, I mean, it was one of those days where you could just practically taste it. Uh, and uh, we uh, we set out, kind of noodled down some Nebraska roads. And, uh, you know, by mid-afternoon, uh, you know, we were set up on this rise uh, overlooking uh, this river valley. And uh, sure enough, that first those first whips, wisps of clouds started descending, and uh, and things just got crazy from there. How did um, how did the, how did those trips um, help you when it comes like what what role did they play in helping you understand who Tim was, and and ultimately how did they they help in in, in over our, in in creating the book? Well. You know, it's those chapters. I mean, you know, I don't have. There's really not much first person in the book, so it's not like they're. It's not like the adventures I had are in the book, but I mean, they were a huge part of it. Um, I mean, it gave me it gave me a taste for what this life is like. I mean, you know, one of the great things about writing this book is that I had access to a ton of chaser footage uh, of Tim's. You know, 
that's the thing about chasers. They film almost everything they do. And, uh, you know, especially Tim, because he had to establish a scientific record. Um, so, I mean, I, there's I have so many deployments of his where, I mean, it's like I can sit next to him in the car practically and I can hear what he heard and, and see what he saw. But there, there, there are certain tactile uh, sensations that, uh, you know, you can't capture with video. Uh, so, uh, you know, standing in the presence of, of high-end, you know, EF4 tornadoes like we did uh, back in 2014, I mean, I, I, could, I knew what it felt like, you know. I mean, I, could, I knew what it sounded like, uh, you know, just with the, the inflow pressing at your back as it, as it sucks in towards the tornado. I mean, there are all these, these, these tactile experiences that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. And it also gave me, you know, an appreciation for the rhythms and the hardship of uh, storm chasing, especially the kind of storm chasing Tim did. Because, I mean, you know, storm chasers, I mean, they'll go out at their leisure. But Tim, I mean, when he was trying to deploy on tornadoes, he would chase concertedly. I mean, he'd be out for weeks at a time. And, uh, you know, chasing with these guys uh, really gave me an appreciation for just how hard it is, how difficult mm, it can be, yeah. and exhausting and, uh, you know, and dispiriting. So, I mean, you know, I felt those experiences out on the road uh, you know, allowed me to empathize with Tim a little more. Yeah, I think that comes through in the book as well, um, uh, a great deal. Um, you mentioned that you, you had access to all this other material, right? All the films and and uh, photos and audio recordings and basically everything, right, that could ha- actually put you uh, at least in that seat. Um, how, how did you get those materials? And then um, how did you uh, use them uh, to work them into into the narrative that you have? Yeah, so I got all that stuff from um, Tim's wife, Kathy. Uh, so he had he had these DVDs that are really hard to find that he would put together uh, with 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 some of his most exciting chases, and he would sell them um, to kind of fund his you know to fund his chasing, help you know pay for a little gas, maybe a motel room here and there. And so I had just hours and hours of this footage. I mean, it was it was incredibly helpful in in, in rendering scenes, you know, uh, because you, you've got you've got you know the, the blow by blow of everything that's going on right there. I mean, some of his some of these uh, some of these are completely unedited, so you're seeing a a, a, an deploy, a deployment uh, attempt where he's trying to intercept a tornado from the beginning to the end, and I would often pair that with um, interviews with uh, people who were in the car with him. So I could not only see what he saw and hear what he heard, you know, I could also get sort of a, an idea from the people who were with him. You know, how was he feeling? What was his mood life? Was he was he feeling dispirited? Was he, um, you know, did he feel a lot of pressure because, you know, he's got National Geographic underwriting uh, his fielding attempts. And, yeah, I mean, he, he felt a distinct pressure, uh, I think, to produce to produce something, to get some kind of results. So, you know, I could also kind of get inside his head, um, you know, with these interviews with, with people who had been with him um, and, you know, get a sense for his, his strategies out on the road. Uh, one thing uh, that I think is, is quite clear in the book is uh, how much technical knowledge you had to gain um, or at least start to understand in order to write about these very technical and technically complex storms. Um, how did you go about learning all that you needed to learn about tornadoes in general? Uh, well, you know, when I started researching uh, this book, you know, I mean, I had a pretty basic idea of what tornadoes were. Okay, just swirling columns of wind. Uh, and what I what I learned is that they are staggeringly complex, and that the atmospheric processes that lead to their formation 
I mean, you need a practically need a PhD to understand some of this stuff. Um, so, I mean, I did some reading, uh, you know, as reporters do. I, you know, I, I picked up uh, Ted Fujita's Mysteries of, the, of Severe Storms. Uh, I read a, a kind of a somewhat beginner's text by Howie Bluestein, although I will say it had a bunch of algebraic equations in it that went way over my head. <laughs> um, I read a bunch of scientific papers that, you know, kind of get at the history of atmospheric science and, you know, and some of the kind of the nitty gritty of storm formation and uh, tornado genesis. And I, probably most importantly, though, I had, you know, what, what we in the in, in the world of journalism call a, a wise person. Um, so I had this uh, research meteorologist um, who was incredibly helpful. He's my guide through this world. Uh, he would, I mean, take all my questions. He would explain things to me, often repeatedly. Uh, and, 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 and when it came time to, you know, fact check the book, I actually sent the manuscript to him so that he could take a look at it and make sure that I hadn't completely botched, uh, you know, the descriptions of, of, of these various atmospheric processes. You, you mentioned uh, uh, a little bit ago that uh, Kathy Samaras was really instrumental uh, and helping you um, at least, uh, you know, obtain a lot of those uh, materials that you needed. You actually th- thank her um, uh, uh, very profusely uh, in the acknowledgement section of the book. Can you talk about uh, uh, about how you reached out to her in the first place and, and, and what that relationship ended up being like uh, as far as reporter uh, and person who's going to help you understand uh, the, her husband who, who died tragically? Right. Uh, she lost her husband and her son right. in a single instant. Um, so, I mean, she'd been through a trauma that I, I, I can't even fathom. Um, the first time we met, uh, it was actually by chance. Uh, I was, you know, it was when I was first going out storm chasing, and uh, I was with a guy named Dan Robinson. It was the, he was the storm chaser who was um, just ahead of Tim on that, uh, on that stretch of dirt road where they had been killed, and whose who's rear-facing dash camera had captured some of the last living images of these, of these three men. And so she wanted to meet him, um, and I was out chasing with him. And uh, so they were going to meet for breakfast, and he encouraged me to come along, and I don't think he told her I was coming. Uh, so I think she was kind of surprised to see me, uh, but she was as nice as, I mean, you know, you could possibly expect. And she knew who I was because she'd seen that story I wrote about Tim for the Dallas Observer. And so, you know, uh, we had this extremely heavy breakfast. I mean, it was really emotional, uh, not the breakfast, the, the interactions. And, uh, you know, we, we exchanged information and, uh, you know, that was it for a while. Um, I mean, it had been less than a year since she'd lost uh, Tim and Paul. And so, you know, I don't think she was ready yet. And, uh, so, you know, we just kind of stayed in touch, um, uh, you know, for the next several months. And then, um, you know, once August rolled around and I kind of just let her know, Hey, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in Colorado, which is where Tim was from, uh, you know, to do a little reporting. Um, and you know, I, I guess she decided that she was, you know, that she, she felt ready to talk. And, um, you know, so we, we met up. Uh, I, I went out to the house and uh, sat down with her, and we probably talked for I don't know seven hours or so. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was one of the one of the hardest interviews I think I've ever conducted. Um, it was incredibly emotional. And uh, you know, we I interviewed her several more times, uh, along with um, you know Tim's uh, two daughters and, uh, and and his other biological son. And uh, you know, I mean, it was it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always easy for her, certainly. Um, I mean, more so than me, um, because you know, I mean, here you know, I, was, I was delving into into some of the most uh, painful, you know, facts of her life, and 
you know, so I think it was hard for her to have good feelings about this project because it, it was just dredging up uh, more pain. Um, and so, you know, it was it was it was difficult for a while. You know, I think she I, I think she just just wasn't comfortable with it. You know, there were times where, you know, I think she really wanted the world to know about her husband and what he'd accomplished in his life. And and then there are times where I think she, you know, I think she just felt she wanted to be more private about it. Um and, you know, wanted to keep, you know, keep, keep these memories to herself. Um, but, uh, you know, Kathy and I have come uh, an incredibly long distance um, to the point where now, I mean, I just actually had lunch with her um, uh, the other day. I was on, you know, I was in Denver for the book tour and uh, you know, uh, met up with her and she, she brought a couple of books for me to sign. And um, I mean, you know, we have a, we have a really good relationship now and she sees this I think she sees this book as, um, you know, in a way, cementing her husband and her son's legacy. And uh, I think she's also seen the reaction from the the Chase community, which seems to really have embraced this book. So I think, you know, I think she's, I think she sees it as a net positive now. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't I never presume to speak for Kathy and, and how she feels, but I mean, it does seem like she's she's really come, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, she's really kind of had a, a change in heart about this book. Uh, this is uh, I'm Matt Tullis uh, with Gangry the Podcast. I'm uh, talking with Brantley Hargrove, who wrote The Man Who Caught the Storm, uh, the, Le- the Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaras. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we will be right back in about 60 seconds. Stick with us. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Brantley Hargrove, who wrote the book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. Brantley, uh, can you talk about like, what some of the bigger challenges uh, of writing this book were for you? Well, you know, being able to competently explain uh, the science was, um, was, was not easy. I mean, I, I'd say that was probably... Uh, probably the biggest hurdle just because atmospheric science uh the learning curve is rather steep um uh but you know the rest you know honestly i didn't have that much trouble with uh you know i gotta say i was really fortunate um (laughs) because you know all the all the the key players in tim's life along with a bunch of the supporting players uh seemed pretty eager to help uh so you know i never I never got any doors slammed in my face. Um, you know, everybody was everybody was happy to talk to me. Um, you know, I was able to get the materials that I needed. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, right on down to you know, sort of describing you know, kind of some of these final scenes and Tim's and uh, Tim's last chase. I mean, you know, I had I had a, a, a you know, Gabe Garfield, this this meteorologist who'd been helping me out and who had 
made a, you know, the most intimate study of, of everything that had gone wrong on that day in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, take me on a drive, you know, explain turn for turn, um, you know, exactly everything that had happened, what they said to one another, where the tornado was, what it was doing. So, you know, I, I, I can't say I had a whole lot of difficulty just in reporting this book. Um, you know, the trick, I think, was, you know, came with the writing and figuring out how to tell this story, uh, you know, where to begin, um, and, and, and how to make sure, you know, the reader understood, uh, you know, what Tim was trying to accomplish. And, um, uh, you know, all the, all the challenges he faced, uh, you know, is this kind of self-made outsider who's, who's approaching the field of atmospheric science from um, really from an angle that nobody had ever seen before and how, you know, he met this resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, with the book, uh, you know, the timeline uh, that you have here in the book is, is very chronological. Um, it, it, was it always going to be that way, or did you have other thoughts on the narrative structure? Uh, oh, can yeah. you talk a little yeah, bit about the that? Yeah, book, you know, as it is now, I mean, it, it, it underwent a pretty significant evolution, uh, as, as well as a significant amount of trimming. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the early draft I had, I think, was about 112,000 words. And I mean, it had... It had me going storm chasing and seeing giant tornadoes. I mean, there was a whole chapter about Ted Fujita, you know, one of the godfathers of uh, of tornado science. You know, there's another chapter where I go to Texas Tech and uh, visit this uh, vortex simulator where they use uh, some of the data Tim had gathered to uh, verify, you know, that the, the vortex's profile uh, was actually true to the real storm. Um, so there was all this, this other stuff. <laughs> that uh, just ended up on the cutting room floor. I mean, really killing your darlings in the truest sense. I was right. pretty aggrieved to cut out my tornado chases because I felt like <laughs> I worked so hard to see something, you know, that turned out to be kind of a once-in-a-generation tornadic event. Uh, but in the end, I felt like it was worth it. Uh, and and w- what we did was we stripped stripped the book down to really its essence. And, you know, in the end, of, we, I think my editor and I, uh, you know, John Cox, uh, Simon & Schuster, this brilliant young editor there, um, you know, we decided that, as fascinating as my adventures were, um, we hoped that the reader would feel that when we left Tim Samaras to join me out on the road, that they would be like, but wait, I'm really into what Tim is doing. And that they would feel like the stuff I was doing was an unnecessary distraction. And so we cut all that stuff out. And, um, you know, the book now, uh, the finished product's about 80,000 words, and it hews very closely to Tim at all times. Yeah, it's absolutely laser focused, and I think that's a, a, one of the strengths of the books. Absolutely, um, that's fantastic. Um, another another thing that I, that I noticed as I was reading is you use the present tense um, a lot. Um, can you talk about wh- why you made that decision? Yeah, that was uh, that was something we experimented with. Actually, um, you know, there, there were there were points where the book was told in past tense, and um, you know, I think our thought process there was, was kind of twofold. Um, you know, one, anybody who's coming to this book, you know, generally knows what happened. I mean, you know, it, it, it was pretty big news when Tim got killed. Um, and we knew that obviously going in that, you know, we really wanted to keep the reader in the driver's seat next to Tim to keep their attention to what was right in front of them and not to be constantly, you know, thinking ahead about what's to come. And so we felt that, you know, keeping, keeping, keeping it in present tense, you know, sort of keeping a, a, a sense of immediacy at all times might help us keep the reader a little closer to the, to the tasks at hand. Uh, and also, I mean, you know, just present tense generally worked really well, I thought, for this book, because, 
you know, so many, you know, a lot of it's very scene driven. You know, you're, 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 you're these moment by moment descriptions of tornado intercepts and probe deployments. And then I thought it really lent itself to a, you know, an immediate uh, present tense um, kind of style. The um, the other the other issue that I would think uh, when it comes to writing a book about a man who everybody knows has died because of what he does is is establishing this kind of narrative engine like what's going to drive the reader you know uh, the reader already knows how it ends in a lot of ways not maybe not the details but what happens in the end um, how how did you navigate that and 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 did you did you think about that as you were writing the book. Uh, well, we certainly thought about that as we were revising the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this book went through uh, a number of drafts, um, thankfully. And, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I, I learned in writing this book is, uh, you know, and it's something you really don't have to think about that much when you're writing features or, you know, magazine uh, stories, is you really have to, you really have to sort of let the reader know uh, where this is headed, you know, like why this, why this chapter is important, why this section uh, is important and why you should keep reading, um, because you're expecting a lot more from the reader, you're expecting a lot more investment of time. And so one of the things we often had to do was, uh, you know, th- what, you know, what they call signposting, where just periodically you, you know, you let the reader know, okay, here's what's at stake. Here's what Tim is attempting to do. Here are the challenges. So you sort of have to, you know, give the reader maybe not so much a roadmap, but at least kind of signal uh, what is to come and why it's important. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, because, I didn't want I didn't want it to seem as though, you know, you know, here's another storm chase and here's another storm chase and for them to run together. I mean, there were there were there were stakes and there were different challenges with each each violent tornado he encountered. And so we sort of had to lay some of that out a little more explicitly than you otherwise would, I think, with a feature story where, you know, I mean, you're only expecting the reader to hang around for maybe five or eight thousand words. And so, you, you know, you can you can leave a little more unsaid than than I think that I could with this book. I love that you use the phrase signposting. Um, I've always known, I've always known that like, I've never knew that there was a word for that. Um, but I also knew I could tell when, when a story was doing it. And I didn't come across that word until um, I just read a book uh, called out on the wire by Jessica Abel. It's actually a graphic narrative on how to do audio um, storytelling. It's basically focused on, um, this American Life Radio Lab, uh, and that's a big deal. The signposting is a really big deal in in in, in radio and sort of storytelling. And so I, it, but you know, as I you know, as I've been thinking about that the last couple of weeks after reading that book, it's it's very much a, a needed thing in narrative journalism as well. Uh, and so I just love that you that you use use that term that I finally learned what it meant <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to, you've got to kind of, you know, with with a, with a book, you know, you, you sort of have to meet the reader halfway a little bit at times. Um, and, you know, I, 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 it was it was something interesting to learn. I mean, I never never thought about it before, and I mean, that was you know, uh, that was just part of the joy of working with my editor, who's a really really dedicated, really brilliant person. Which, uh, you know, hint, hint of John, if you're listening to this, I hope I get to write my next book with you. <laughs> the uh, so so you did you you started out at an, at the Alt Weekly Dallas Observer was that your first job out of college? Uh, no, no, my first job was at a it was at a daily newspaper. Okay, uh, uh, circulation about eight thousand, I think, in uh, in Gillette, Wyoming. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so I, that was my first my first job. My second um, was as a fellow at a at New Times Broward Palm Beach was which is another one of those. Uh, as one of those village voice papers. Um, so that was really where I got my, my first taste of actual, 
narrative, you know, narrative journalism, you know, telling a telling a long story with, um, you know, with a beginning and an end, you know, that sort of has this arc to it. Um, and then, you know, and then I, I stayed in the Alt Weekly world, um, you know, right up through the Dallas Observer. I, you know, I worked at the Nashville scene, Nashville, Tennessee, and then. Then I came to Dallas in about 2011 and worked at the Observer um, until uh, you know early early 2014 when I um, you know I decided to just uh, 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 cut the cord and, and, and try that freelance life and uh, you know was also kind of finishing up with the book proposal and was hoping that would that would turn into something. Um, so yeah, ever since I've been uh, you know I've been working on this book and just doing freelance magazine work. Did you uh, w- when you were in college did you know you wanted to be a reporter? Yeah, yeah. So I went to the University of North Texas and um, and got my undergrad degree in journalism, which you know, I mean, kind of turned out to be a little redundant. But uh, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a good experience, and I had a really great professor. You know, I keep in touch with this day, and who still edits uh, you know some of my stuff every now and then. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I mean, I was I was one of those those kids who was always reading, and uh, you know, I, mean, I I think journalism just felt like kind of a good way to get into that. Right. Right. Um, you, uh, I know you have been a regular at Mayborn, or at least I, I remember seeing you there. Uh, really funny. I, I recognized your name, uh, when I, you know, when I ordered the book, um, but I couldn't put a face with you until I opened the back, you know, the book, the back cover of the book. And I saw your, your headshot and I was like, I've seen him before, uh, at Mayborn. Um, can you talk a little bit about Mayborn and, and do you, there are so many connections there, right? In terms of you meet people, um, did you meet anybody there who you were able to, um, bounce parts of this book off of to get their feedback in the writing process? And, and how did that, if, if so, did that, how did that help? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been going to the Mayborn. I've been to every single one since it started in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, come, come July when it's hot as hell, I'm in Grapevine, Texas, at the DFW Hilton Lakes. I mean, it's just kind of, it's a ritual practically. Um, and I mean, yeah, Mayborn's has figured pretty huge in my life as a writer. I mean, Mayborn is where I met my agent, David Patterson. Um, you know, uh, people who go to the Mayborn, uh, you know, that I met through, you know, UNT, uh, you know, like, uh, Mike Mooney, uh, Tara Neustig, uh, you know, in addition to my editor, Simon and Schuster, you know, Mike and Tara, uh, were pretty, pretty huge uh for me in writing this book i mean you know mike helped me helped me figure out an initial outline uh for the book i mean you know later that outline got uh, tossed in the garbage bin but right. you got to start somewhere right um and, and tara you know was, was 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 one of the later readers of the manuscript as we were sort of you know finishing it out and had some incredible feedback so yeah i mean you know some of these mayborn people uh uh, we're, we're pretty instrumental and, in, uh, you know, in, not in just the, the early parts of the book, but also putting some of the finished touches and, you know, just getting an, a, another set of outside eyes on it, which is, you know, as you know, valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, uh, is, is a, a member of a very small class of people who have been on this podcast twice. Uh, unfortunately that was <laughs> yeah. because the first ep- he was the second episode ever of the podcast. Oh, really? Um, but we lost that. We lost that audio file at some point in time. And so we had to get him back on. So, uh, he's so much yeah. fun to talk to about reporting and writing and, and has so much insight. Um, this, this book has gotten a ton of great reviews. Um, what, I mean, what's that been like for you since the books come out? Uh, it's been pretty weird, honestly. Um, you know, here's this thing that I labored on for four years, kind of in darkness, you know, like right. it was really just something that was in my head and on my computer and really only me and my editor knew what was going on there. And, 
yeah, I mean, now to see it, you know, get get pretty well received by, you know, some some pretty big publications, it's been, you know, it, it's nice. It's nice to it's nice to see all the, you know, the hard work that went into this thing finally start to start to bear fruit for other people, you know, to get to know uh, this guy that, you know, I know so well already. Well, I've been uh, talking with Brantley Hargrove, who wrote The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaris. Brantley, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on, man. I've been talking with Brantley Hargrove. Hargrove wrote the book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaris. It was published by Simon & Schuster in April. You can find links to Hargrove's work on our website. That's at gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.